Dr. Jason Woods here, and this is the Little Big Med podcast where we're talking little patients, but big medicine. It's no secret that I live in Colorado and there are a couple of things that we see here that aren't as common elsewhere. I wanted to dive into one of those today, altitude illness in children. Many of you will see this either at work or on your own personal travels. I asked Dr. Elaine Reno, an emergency medicine physician here who also works in the section of wilderness and environmental medicine, to give us a high-level overview of altitude illness in kids, as well as what uh, issues you might need to know to counsel a family on before a trip to altitude. One of the biggest issues with this topic is the lack of pediatric-specific data. We will talk about potential therapies where we can, but know that they are often expert opinion rather than data-driven. I will list several resources in the show notes if you want additional details. The other big issue is that the pathophysiology of high-altitude illness is complex and incompletely understood. There are multiple compensatory mechanisms related to altitude, which include increased respiratory rate, increased hemoglobin concentration, which occurs both by plasma volume constriction and increased production, increased production of vascular endothelial growth factor, and changes in the relative vasoconstriction of the pulmonary and cerebral vasculature. In addition, Altitude shifts the hemoglobin binding curve both left, you get alkalosis from increased respiratory rate, and to the right with production of 2,3-DPG. The balance is inconsistent among patients and at varying altitudes. HAPE specifically does typically have elevated pulmonary artery pressure with uneven regional vasoconstriction through different segments of the lung, and that may contribute to edema. But it's a little bit unclear why one patient gets that and another doesn't. Vasogenic edema does seem to contribute to high-altitude cerebral edema, but the balance of vasoconstriction and vasodilation in the brain in those individuals is not well understood. So being aware that we don't know everything about this illness, let's talk about what we do know. And we'll start with Dr. Reno chatting about what altitudes you actually are likely to experience illness. Are there any general criteria for how high you generally need to be to experience these symptoms? Or if you're going to take a trip uh, and you're going to be above a certain level, whether you actually need to worry about it or not? We tend to think of it of altitude in sort of low, moderate, and high altitude. So the first thing I'd say tell you is that you're not going to get this say if you climb the hill behind your house. Um, you really need to be experiencing some moderate to high altitude when we look at data, actually, the majority of these diseases occur between eight and 14,000 feet here in the United States. That's a moderate um, altitude, but it's essentially the area where we see travelers the most frequently. So, you know, getting up above 14,000 feet is pretty difficult in the continental United States. Um, and so the the range that we're seeing most altitude is eight to 14,000 as a further introduction, high altitude illness is often broken down into illnesses that affect the brain and illnesses that affect the lungs. We'll start with the brain, and that's generally divided into acute mountain sickness and high altitude cerebral edema, or HACE. So I asked Elaine to give us an overview of what those mean and how she thinks about them. The first thing I think about is acute mountain sickness. There's a scoring criteria for it called Lake Louise score, and there's a modified version for children. It essentially breaks down to the presence of a headache with a whole series of various symptoms like fatigue, poor sleep, primarily nonspecific symptoms. And then the more severe thing that we worry about is high-altitude cerebral edema, and that's just what it sounds like. It's swelling in the brain related to altitude. And are those considered to be two pieces of the same spectrum, or are they thought to be different pathologies? They have different diagnostic criteria, although similar risk factors. And 
you know, there's a little bit of a, a debate in that. I think that probably it is the same spectrum and acute mountain sickness is just a very, very mild form. And then it progresses to high altitude cerebral edema. Elaine, do you mind giving us a rundown of, of the pediatric Lake Louise score? I can, I'll link to it in the show notes, but I wonder if we can maybe review what's in it. The Lake Louise score is a scoring system for acute mountain sickness. And the reality is it in your teenagers and probably your preteens, this is a scoring system that would be most consistent for them. And so we talk about first you need the presence of a headache and then the concurrent symptoms that go with it. So gastrointestinal symptoms, fatigue, dizziness or lightheadedness, difficulty sleeping. So there's a modified version of this um, in, in preverbal children. The biggest thing we talk about is fussiness. So preverbal children obviously can't tell us what's going on. And so we look at how fussy they are. And when we talk about fussiness, we talk about crying, restlessness, and we ask parents to rate it on a scale of one to six in the preceding 24 hours. The amount of fussiness and the intensity of fussiness. And then we look at other factors like how has the child eaten, how playful does, is the child, and how has the child slept. And the First thing I'd say about this score is that when it's been studied, it has had good, essentially, inner parent reliability, but its ability in terms of, you know, treatment modality um, is less well studied. And is this a scoring system where it's sort of like a yes, no, you either have altitude symptoms or not, or does it give you a range of the higher it is, the more likely and the higher severity of the symptoms? Altitude illness in children is interesting because if you think about all of these diagnostic criteria, like if you take your child out of their normal environment and they don't have their like regular crib for nap, then, you know, all of these things uh, can certainly come into play. Yesterday, my son missed his afternoon nap and he would have scored like the maximum <laughs> capacity on this scoring system with zero travel just because he decided not to take his afternoon nap. So what we think about is, how does your child normally act? How are they acting differently? And then if there's um, travel to altitude and the symptoms are progressing, you know, unexplained fussiness in a child at altitude, you, you need to really consider, is this altitude related? Is this acute mountain sickness? Because children get acute mountain sickness. And if so, how how do I want to treat that and how do I want to manage that? So still sticking on brain-related stuff, are there specific risk factors for developing this outside of how high you're going? The first and most important factor is how high are you going, right? So if you're at 3,000 feet, you're not going to get acute mountain sickness. If you're at 18,000 feet, the likelihood that you do is extremely high. So how high you go is a huge factor. Another major factor is how fast you go. It's common for people to fly here into Denver, Colorado, and then immediately head up to the mountains um, and to do an entire ascent from sea level to uh, ski slope in under 12 hours. And I get it because everyone wants to get to the slopes as fast as possible and spend as much time there as possible. But I caution people that if you haven't traveled to altitude a lot and you don't know how you're going to handle it, or if you've traveled in the past and not felt good, you know, Denver's a great city. We have a fantastic children's museum. Like just spend a day here, spend one night in Denver um, and slow your rate of ascent. And that's one of the biggest things you can do uh, to prevent it is um, do a gradual rate of ascent. If you're going above 8,000 feet, slow your rate of ascent to about 500 to 1,000 feet a day. Is that the peak height that you're going to be in that day, or do we generally measure that based on where you're going to be sleeping? The phrase everyone uses is climb high, sleep low. And so uh, your sleeping altitude is one of the biggest things that matters. So if you're going to say hike a peak with your child, then what we want you to do is sleep at a lower altitude and then 
ascend the peak that day and then come back down. What about any other risk factors outside of that or anything that's specific? And this could be both adults and kids. Yeah, so that's a good question. So there's a ton of risk factors. We think about sort of intrinsic and extrinsic risk factors. Intrinsic risk factors are risk factors, you know, related to the health of the child. And so there is most likely an underlying genetic basis um, related to high altitude illness and disease and how well we tolerate it. But there's some definite things that we know as well. So congenital heart patients, for example, um, have a higher risk of high altitude illness, specifically high altitude pulmonary edema. Children with sickle cell disease and adults, actually, we know hypoxic environments can increase their sickling. So likely those children have higher rates. Other things we think about, so anything that increases the risk of an underlying pulmonary hypertension, we think is a a very big risk factor. Aside from known underlying medical conditions uh, related to the patient, there's also good literature in children that supports that an underlying inflammatory condition can increase the child's likelihood of developing high-altitude pulmonary edema. So we think bronchiolitis, pneumonia, but even something as mild as viral illness and, you know, acute otitis media. That doesn't hold through to adults. It's something that's particularly specific to children. We've touched on it a couple of different times, but moving on to high-altitude pulmonary edema and and lung-related high-altitude illness, are there different things that are risk factors for it compared to acute mountain sickness or high-altitude cerebral edema, or are we looking at generally the same types of things that we should watch out for? So I don't think it's been piecemealed out that much. We think probably the congenital cardiac problems, underlying perinatal pulmonary hypertension, uh, congenital abscess of the right pulmonary artery, or um, these are all risk factors for high altitude pulmonary edema. The the reality is though, um, you know, when you're thinking about these children with underlying medical etiologies, um, you really need to be careful about um, taking them up to altitude and making sure that uh, you're being safe when you do it. The initial symptoms are fatigue, dyspnea on exertion, decreased exercise intolerance, and then it progresses to pulmonary edema. And patients can develop frothy pink sputum. They can be hypoxic. Um, you can hear rails in the lungs, and they can be cyanotic with the increased respiratory rate. So I know that there's this phenomenon called re-entry hape. Can you talk a little bit about what that actually is, how we define it, and is it any different than the regular hape? It's very rare, but there's a subset of children that live at altitude, fly to, I always say it's they're visiting their grandparents in Florida because those are the cases (laughs) I've been The two patients that I've had with this condition both flew to Florida. So our in-laws live in Florida, so we'll see how we handle that when he gets older. But <laughs> it's always children that go down to sea level, and then the the family doesn't think about, oh, my child can get altitude illness because they're just going home. They don't think about, oh, we're going up to altitude. It is not well studied because it is quite rare. Some of the developing theories that potentially people living at altitude have a greater risk of developing underlying pulmonary hypertension um, related to their altitude exposure. And so I would argue that... Um, if a child develops reentry hape, they probably need a further workup to figure out if there's something underlying. Now, I know that there's not always great pediatric data in the treatment of these illnesses, but can you talk a little bit about the medications that we could use to prevent as well as to treat these things if they're happening? There's medications we can use to prevent these diseases. The most common one we use is called Diamox. It's acetazolamide, and it's well-studied in adults, um, much less well-studied in children. So you know, I would caveat that that I'd be much less inclined to use a preventative medication um, and just encourage a slow ascent. You know, Diamox, there can be 
concerns in people with sulfa allergies that there's cross-reactivity. It is a diuretic, and so it can predispose children to dehydration. And so um, just gradual ascent is, to me, the most important thing. When we're talking about the acetazolamide, the data in adults, is that primarily studied in uh, prevention of acute mountain sickness and HACE or HAPE or all, all of the above? The biggest thing people take it for is prevention of acute mountain sickness. Mainly, I mean, you could argue it's because acute mountain sickness is by far the most common. So, right. so what about medications other than acetazolamide? Yeah, so um, there's Lidotron, dexamethasone, and nifedipine as other methods. And then some of the pulmonary hypertension drugs are entering the literature. I think that I would defer those to like specific children with specific risk factors. So like if the child has known underlying pulmonary hypertension for some reason, that might be a discussion with their pulmonologist or their cardiologist as to prophylaxis with those medications um, before ascending to altitude. Let's say that you're you're at altitude and you have already started to develop symptoms. Are there known clear treatment protocols or, or things to do other than the obvious, which is getting them lower? Yeah, so the most important thing to do is descent. It's common actually for these children to like be seen in an emergency room up in Summit County is the most common and they're up there and they're hypoxic and they have pulmonary edema and um, they don't feel great and then they get put in an ambulance and they get driven to Denver and by the time they they get there here, you know, their saturations are like fantastic and they're like running around the emergency room and the parents are like, I can't know. believe you made us screw up our vacation. Yeah. Like, can we go skiing now? <laughs> like this kid seems fine. So, you know, descent is the most important thing. Um, for high altitude cerebral edema, if the child is really sick, then dexamethasone is a possibility. Let's say your child is fussy if it's a baby, but otherwise doing okay, or your teenager has a headache and just is kind of fatigued. You know, meets the diagnostic criteria for acute mountain sickness, but isn't isn't really progressing. So you can actually just stay in place. Don't go any higher. Minimize exertion. So don't go for a hike that day. Watch a movie instead um, and see how the kid does. So most of these um, illnesses develop in the first, you know, 12 hours to 24 hours. It, people can be developing it up to 96 hours out. But traditionally, it's like pretty fast. Um, and we acclimatize pretty quickly. And so it starts to resolve over the next day or so. I want to specifically ask about high altitude cerebral edema. Are there any treatments that are known to work for that? And what do you do if you've got a patient with it? The mainstay, um, if you're having cerebral edema, um, would be dexamethasone. If the child has cerebral edema, then you really want to see what you can do to really get this child down. Is there any role for something like hypertonic saline? Hypertonic saline, mannitol, I have not seen good literature that supports it that would be helpful to these patients. Are there guidelines for who can safely return to altitude? Does that make you more likely to recommend some sort of medication prophylaxis or is your recommendation uh, frequently for them to consider not reascending to the same altitude? So that's a good question. I think it really depends um, the severity of the initial initial insult. So like, for example, I get acute mountain sickness if I go hike a 14er and don't acclimatize. But I recently hiked a 17,000 foot peak in Peru and I just did it very gradually and I did it with no prophylaxis because I'm allergic to Dimox. And so I think it really depends on how sick did they get the first time. So if your kid got high altitude cerebral edema and, you know, had to be flown to an ICU somewhere, like, do you really want to take that risk again? 
So I think most of what we've been talking about are families that are going to travel to altitude for a vacation and their children are going to be old enough to participate in whatever activity they're doing. But I don't think that we've specifically addressed infants. So families traveling anyway, but it's not an older child. It's it's a child that's, say, six-month-old. Do we have any specific recommendations for them as far as how high or how fast they should go, uh, different recommendations for, for prophylaxis or acclimatization? There's some... Um, potential theory that infants, particularly premature infants or really young infants like less than six weeks of age, potentially have a higher risk or it's just much more difficult to evaluate them. And so there are some guidelines that recommend not taking infants above 6,000 feet. Now, we know that can be a little bit difficult, especially because there are people that live higher than that. But what we're getting at here is that the general recommendation is that if you've got a newborn, probably best to avoid taking them up significantly higher than what they're used to living at. And the last little tidbit that I wanted to mention, because this actually comes up relatively frequently, is if you have had to descend to lower altitude for resolution of symptoms such as HAPE, those children should not immediately return to altitude. This comes up with us all the time. Families up at the ski mountains, their chest x-ray looks awful and they're hypoxic there. They drive down to Denver. They look substantially better. They're not hypoxic. And the question is, what can they do? And and unfortunately, the answer is they cannot immediately return to altitude because that is going to return those symptoms. Now, it's a little bit unclear how long that patient would need to wait until they could safely return to altitude. That is definitely a longer discussion with their primary care doctor, but it definitely is not going to be within the same vacation trip. Just to review, altitude illness, at least in the United States, is pretty rare below 8,000 feet. You can certainly get some symptoms of headache and maybe some very mild acute mountain sickness a little bit lower than that, but 8 to 14,000 feet is where we see this most commonly here. By far the most common illness that you're going to see is acute mountain sickness, and there's a whole scoring system for it. I will link to it in the show notes that will give you an idea of how severe it is and how likely it is to be altitude illness. In all of the scoring systems and the discussion of haste and HAPE, one of the criteria is that there is not an alternate explanation. So you need to have traveled to altitude. And there's not clearly another reason for why you've developed these new symptoms. We mostly bring this up so that if you happen to be at altitude, you remember to think about it as a possible cause. Treatment guidelines are a little bit few and far between. As far as prevention, most of the time the experts recommend slow acclimatization, to so slow down your rate of ascent rather than trying to do prophylaxis, particularly in children. I've been your host, Dr. Jason Woods. Please keep the conversation going by finding me on Twitter at jwoodsmd, via email at littlepatientsbigmedicine at gmail.com, or at the Little Big Med website, www.littlebigmed.com. Don't forget to head over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. It really does help others to find this podcast. I want to thank Dr. Reno for being with us today. We'll see you next time. This podcast is recorded in the studios of the Digital Scholarship Accelerator at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. 